Well, good morning, Westridge. Let's get the important stuff out of the way right up front. How about those Western Conference champion Chicago, your Chicago Blackhawks? I want to invite all of you to come down to my condo a few blocks from the United Center for the first Stanley Cup home game. I'm not going to be there, but you can wave as you go past. Well, I feel like this message, this is the second of a two-part series we started last week. How many of you were here last week and promised to come this week? Okay, so about 50% of that crowd lied that they were going to be here. Um, I feel like this message needs to come with a warning label. You know how everything has a warning label today? Because there's nothing that's good for you that you eat or drink. Um, for a couple of reasons. One is, um, for some people in some places, this topic today is not politically correct. It's not something polite people ought to talk about. Um, second reason is, if you came, you know, this Sunday and you wanted this to be the kind of feel-good, poppy, oh yeah, Gordon, make me laugh again kind of message, oh, maybe not today. So you feeling good about things so far? You can still leave, come back at 10 to, 10, uh, 10 to 12, uh, because I'm speaking, you know we'll be done by then, and uh, everything will be all right. Um, you know, sometimes you have, uh, you watch films and they make an impression on you. You remember, you remember where you were, who you were with, and you just never forgot those films. Like, for example, The Wizard of Oz, that wonderful musical with really underlying some deep messages, um, uplifting in many ways. I'm not going to talk about that film. The film I'm going to talk about today is a film that no less a film critic than Roger Ebert labeled as the scariest movie ever made. The 1973 film entitled The Exorcist. I still remember the evening that, uh, that I went with my friend. It was one of those old, spooky, large theaters that actually had gargoyles inside. Um, after we saw it, we both looked at each other and said, let's go to church Sunday. <laughs> Many of its scenes are still shocking. The character played by Linda Blair in full possession mode, bed levitating, rotates her head 360 degrees, vomits green pea soup into the face of a priest. I mean, who of us haven't, hasn't done that? <laughs> and those are just the shocking scenes I can talk about on a Sunday morning. According to a study from Baylor University, when asked to agree or disagree with this statement... Most evil in the world is caused by mankind. Most evil in the world is caused by mankind. 89% agreed. When asked to agree or disagree with the statement, human nature is basically evil. Human nature is basically evil. 68% disagreed. So, I'm not a statistician, but it looks like the overwhelming majority agree most evil in the world is caused, caused by mankind, but... Human nature is basically not evil. Sometimes these discussions about this topic can go in a circle. That's why I'm focusing this message on the question, what is evil, rather than why 
is there evil? Or where does evil come from? We may not always agree on the origin or reason, but we can learn to spot it and overcome it. Elie Wiesel, the famous Jewish philosopher, describes the horrific spectacle of seeing a young boy hung from the gallows by the death camp guards in Hitler's Germany. Wiesel cries out that the hanged boy dying in that noose for him was God. God dying to him. Later in 1997, Wiesel wrote that after half a century, he wanted to make up with the God he abandoned on the gallows. Although, he says, Auschwitz must and will forever remain a question mark that no theological answers have yet explained. So I'm not suggesting a steady diet of this. After all, this is the last message in the series. But always averting our eyes from the topic of evil has problems of its own too. We've gone through different cycles in this country with regard to this topic. From seeing a witch in every corner to disbelieving in the devil altogether. The period of enlightenment proposed that we didn't need a devil on the basis that science no longer needed him as an explanation for behavior. Lunatics were no longer possessed but sick. And one could no longer be a witch. One could only pretend to be one. Or delude oneself into thinking so. And here we are today in what we could call the postmodern mindset, which allows for the supernatural, supernatural, but reduces good and evil to opinions and perspectives. As as in, well, that's just your perspective. That's not mine. I don't want to judge these things. That's left us in a predicament. Our culture has a general inability to recognize and confront evil. And if we can't recognize evil, we can't fight evil. We can't even have a system of justice that punishes evil. We become incapable of determining whether anyone is ever guilty for any reason. Good and evil gets reduced merely to different viewpoints, just different opinions, different cultural perspectives. And the predicament we're in today grows in complexity. If you can't identify the darkness of evil, neither can you recognize the light of goodness. So let's get some clarity on the subject. And let's use a writing from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians that gives us some insight and will define for us some hallmarks of this topic. It goes like this. And I'll keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. My thesis in this message is pretty simple, and that is this. It's to our advantage in life to distinguish between the neon-lit angels and the real ones. And so toward that end, some hallmarks of evil when we see it. The first hallmark is this. Evil is well disguised, at least at first. 
We can stand aghast before large-scale genocide that's taking place in so many parts of the world today. Awful things that happened every day in the killing fields of Cambodia for three and a half terrible years. And when we learned of that genocide, people could only respond with dumb horror. The mastermind of Cambodia's killing fields, Paul Pot, killed one million Cambodians. Before he died in 1998, his only comment about reigning over that horrible genocide was this. My conscience is clear. Mark this well. Evil people characteristically want to appear good. But their goodness is a pretense. They light their lives with neon, not natural light. It is, in effect, a lie. That's why they are, above all else, people of the lie. And why the Bible calls Satan the father of all lies. Evil's often heard saying phrases like this. It's everyone else's fault. I don't have any sin of my own here to deal with. By the way, I was just wondering, what's wrong with you? I don't want to deal with that. Let's talk about something pleasant for a, for a change. That's the comment I most hear after my messages. You're the one with the problem. There's good theology when the priest, played by Max von Sydow, tells his younger priest during the exorcism, especially important is the warning to avoid conversations with the demon. We may ask what is relevant, but anything beyond that is dangerous. He's a liar. The demon is a liar. He will lie to confuse us. But he will also mix lies with truth to attack us. The attack is psychological, Damien, and powerful. So don't listen to him. Remember that. Do not listen. Evil creates a race of surface people, unable or unwilling to get beneath the surface to the real demons that plague their lives. Evil also characteristically scapegoats people. They're all too willing to sacrifice others to preserve their self-image of perfection. Thus, it's common for people who try to expose evil to be labeled as evil themselves. That's why you find in the Gospels that Jesus, of all things, Jesus is accused of being in league with the devil, it says. He was accused of that. People the lie don't want to talk about the possibility of evil lest the conversation start, starts to hit too close to home. Historically, we see this. We see that if enough people can begin to define themselves as good, in contrast to other people that they define as bad, those others come to be seen as less than human. And genocide is justified in the, in the eyes of those who perpetrate it on the grounds that, watch this, they're not killing real people. Instead, they're eliminating something evil from the world. They're actually doing something good. Just like Hitler. Just like Pol Pot. Just like Osama bin Laden. And when evil justifies itself as something good, That's especially evil. 
So I don't know about you, but I'll keep praying. Deliver me from evil. Hallmark number two. Evil is the opposite of live. Catch that little wordplay there in the English language? Live, evil. Jesus says, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to create a bunch of self-righteous religious people who are always judgmental with other people. No, that's not what he says. Jesus says, my purpose is to give life in all its fullness. So, there is a trail of theft, robbery, and death wherever evil has been. And it doesn't have to be wide-scale genocide, loss of innocence, death of emotions, anything and everything that is the, is the opposite of life. The late Dr. Scott Peck, who wrote the book People of the Lie, says evil then, for the moment, is that force residing either inside or outside of human beings that seeks to kill life or liveliness. And goodness is its opposite. Goodness is that which promotes life and liveliness. But evil deeds do not an evil person make. We've all sinned and fallen short. The difference between the truly evil people and us common sinners is the consistency of sin. That's why when you hear a story of abuse in the news, which seems to be almost weekly these days, and the first one or two women or children come out, you almost always know that's just the tip of the iceberg. But it would be a mistake to think that all evil looks spectacular. Many Nazi-era Germans gave their lives over to the demonic one mundane inch at a time. Hannah Arendt, the brilliant author of The Human Condition, watched Adolf Eichmann, the master engineer of the Holocaust, while he was on trial in Jerusalem. She saw him not as a monster, but as a blank, dull, commonplace clerk of a man who had given himself over to evil unlimited. Evil finds its niche in common conformity. How did Eichmann lose control and perpetrate this horrible evil on humankind? Hannah Arendt says he lost control in teaspoons. She says each of Eichmann's early choices was piddling, joining the Nazi party, accepting assignments, getting promotions, promotions, inching his way into bureaucratic favor. But each choice was a link in a chain that lashed his petty life to inhumane evil. What makes the invasion of evil a real threat to ordinary people is that, contrast to film, we're seldom enticed to bargain away our souls in a single seduction. Instead, evil whittles away. Slicing a a sliver here, a shaving there, getting us into the habit of making measly little compromises with deceit until we vacated our control center and handed it over to the lie. Satan may be a neon-lit angel, but he's no fool. Getting a poor devil to roll his eyes and make a gargoyle of his face 
is not a demonic triumph. Getting an ordinary person committed, sober-faced, to an uplifting, inspiring lie, however, and you've gotten yourself a prize if you happen to be a demon. Now, here's the logical conclusion. Here's the takeaway of this passage and these hallmarks. If evil masquerades as an angel of light, what would be the best place for it to hide? Right here. What better place for evil to hide than in the church? Who would think to look for it there? Over the years, I've seen way too many leaders beaten down, not physically, but emotionally and spiritually by evil, to the point that massive numbers of them just decide to step out, not only of church, uh, not only of leadership, but the church altogether. I was a fairly young pastor when I accepted the call to a new church. This church was only three years old, and as many churches like that do, they were meeting in an elementary school. And uh, I knew a little bit about their brief history. They'd already had two pastors in three years, but I just charged it off to bad choices. And this church was in a growing community. They had everything going for it. And early on, one family in particular, they were very encouraging to me. Very normal-looking family, nice home, nicely landscaped yard, ran a local business in the community, was treasurer of the church, was treasurer of the local church planning organization that helped this church get started. He was going to be my ally. He was going to be my go-to guy. And so along the way of getting the church organized, I suggested an annual audit. To this day, I don't know why I suggested that that early on. So we asked my good buddy for the books. And back in those days, they were literally the books. There was no accounting software they were transferred. They were books. They were book books that you'd touch and feel and open and read. That's another subject for you guys. So we had to have the books for the audit. But we had trouble getting them. So weeks went by, and he had one excuse after the other. And finally, another leader on our leadership team who worked in law enforcement did what law enforcement people do. He gets up six inches from his face and said, listen, one of two things is going to happen. Either we're going to have those books or you're going to have a subpoena for us to get the books. That's when he confessed. He started by using church money to buy inventory for his business. And then he'd pay it back with interest. Then he'd pay it back without interest. Just an inch at a time. And then he'd get behind and he wouldn't pay it back at all. Just another little piddling decision. And then he'd do the same with the church planning organization where he was also treasurer. And that's when it got weird. When we told the rest of the leadership team that one of our members had been embezzling over a period of years, another person on the leadership team got indignant with me for making it so difficult on the embezzler. And then I went to the church planning organization and told them the same. And the director of that organization was also a pastor. He had the same response. Why would I want to persecute this fine leader? 
I wanted to shout, the power of Christ compels you. But I didn't have any holy water. Wrong denomination. But evil, evil is just that way. Well disguised, good at lying, robbing people of life over a long period of time. Now you may be saying to yourself, that's a, that's a great story, glad that happened to you, so you could tell us that on Sunday morning, but that's pretty rare. And I wish you were right. Did you hear just a few weeks ago about the four cancer charities that built donors out of $187 million over five years? The charities paid for training trips for employees and their families to luxury destinations, including cruises, two all-expense-paid trips to Walt Disney World. All the while, the Cancer Fund told the public in its solicitation that its number one priority is patient care. Right? Good cover. There were subscriptions to dating websites, and I'm not making this up, meals at Hooters, purchases at Victoria's Secret, not to mention jet ski joy rides and couples cruises to the Caribbean. Oh, but don't worry, they did spend some money on the cancer patients. It went toward care packages that included Little Debbie snack cakes, sample size shampoos, and iPod cases. Not the iPods, just the cases. And they sent these to individuals regardless of their age or their gender. The artificial light of evil, it's shadowy. It's murky. It's confusing. In contrast, the goodness of God's light, it's brilliant. It's clarifying. It's liberty, liberating. It gives us real life. So when it comes to being possessed, don't look so much for levitating beds and rotating heads as a sign of evil. Look at whether or not lying has become your lifestyle. I don't think it a coincidence that in the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, our Father, Jesus includes this phrase, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It was on that Monday, Thursday when Jesus was betrayed and that Good Friday when he was crucified that the demonic horde had their day. They had their shot. They threw everything they had. And it looked like all was lost. The ultimate act of evil was complete. The resurrection disproved that. That's why we meet here today. That's why around here we take communion every Sunday because our remembering that event is the only thing in this life that gives us hope and empowers us to do what Jesus 
prayed to resist temptation and to be delivered from evil. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do remember that act of power that transcends our ability to understand, but at the same time empowers us on a day-to-day basis to resist temptation and be delivered from evil. And so this time, as we remember your death, burial, and resurrection, we ask that you would help us to do that just this week. In your name we pray. Amen.